Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Today we're very happy to welcome back our favorite contemporary classical composer, although not classical because you're not dead yet, Timo Andrus. Timo, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure as always. Um, glad to know I'm not yet classical. Good thing. <laughs> There's hope for the future. We talked about this in a previous episode. I'll link to the episodes that you've been on before about, you know, what is classical music. We're not going to get into that now. But the reason we wanted to talk to you today is that you are involved in a new project, which is the publication of the scores of all 20 of Philip Glass's piano etudes. And I wanted to talk about what is a piano etude for people who may not know, and to talk about the specificity of these works by Philip Glass. So this is a fancy new uh, box set of the scores uh, with a book with essays and all. And I believe you're the person who edited the scores, correct? I did in collaboration with um, Corey Davis, who is uh, an editor at, at Dunvegan, Philip's publishing company. Um, as you you might know, Philip likes to sort of keep everything in house. Um, so we, so Corey and I went back to sort of the primary sources, the the um, Philip's handwritten manuscripts, and of which there are often many versions uh, for the same piece over the over the over the years, um, and just kind of compared notes, looked at the way that he notated specific things, um, which we often uh, felt was clearer than um, the way that, uh, you know, previous editions had had chosen to do it. Um, so, you know, it is, I think of it as, yes, a, a special edition, Maybe, not or text or anything, because, you know, these are still living documents, you know, uh, by, by a living composer. And I, I would say that also we're, we're, we're not musicologists. Um, you know, all of that. I was going to say that sounded like you put on another hat, pianist, composer, video producer, recording artist, et cetera. You do all sorts of things because musicologist is a totally different type of work. Well, the the other thing too is that I have never heard of a person. What did you say that you are the um, editor, editor, the editor of the music that someone has already written. And that kind of hit me in the forehead with like, wait a minute, why does music require the editing? And you kind of explained it. You said, well, he's been working on it over the years and there are different versions. And It's a but- little bit of a different job than you would say, you know, the editor of a magazine uh, would be um, because you aren't really um, – in the business of of changing the uh the substance of the music you can't say remove that comma well you you can but uh no it's it's more about sort of editing for consistency for clarity you know music notation is not an exact science you know given uh given a, a musical passage there are any number of different ways that you could choose to notate it and it would sound more or less the same. Um, but 
when you get into sort of the fine gradations of detail of phrasing and dynamics and rhythm and um, just sort of how things are laid out on the page, um, it actually becomes quite a complex uh, kind of hierarchy of needs. And especially when your goal is, you know, how can we put together a document that is as useful to sort of the amateur as it is to the professional, um, that will be enjoyable to use for kind of all audiences. Um, you can use it in the home, in performance, um, you know, something that's very functional and also aesthetically beautiful because, you know, to me, music notation has the potential to be extremely beautiful. And, you know, I think we can all um, think of examples of that. Um, but it's very rare in contemporary work, especially to be able to get to that point because we're all just so strapped for time and money constantly. It's like none of the publishers really have the wherewithal to uh, work over music until it's at that state. It's really just like, oh, let's get it into a kind of foolproof performance ready uh, shape and good enough. And then if you look at, um, you know, nice Henley or Barenreiter editions of, you know, the standard repertoire of can canonic repertoire, um, those really achieve a kind of um, beauty on the page that was, that that was sort of our, our North Star for this glass project was like, can we do that with the work of a living composer? And also part of it is, I don't want to use the term dumbing down, but making it, you said, so it's usable for amateurs and professionals. If you could add more stuff to the notation, that would make it harder for amateurs to get into the music, to be able to read the music. We're not in the business of adding stuff. No, I mean more know. dynamic markings and phrasing markings and all of that. That's all very much the composer's domain. And, okay. and Philip, as you might know, is tends to be quite sparing with those kinds of indications. I mean, look at his manuscripts. I mean, there's just not that much information. It's not very dense. It's more in line, actually, with what you might find in a classical piece of Mozart or Haydn or Bach, you know. Where, whereas you young whippersnappers, you want to add all sorts of gaudy stuff onto your scores, right? You know, uh, we like to get fancy sometimes. I, I, I think there's a, there's a balance of, you know, not enough and too much information. And, you know, um, sometimes uh, I, I think composers, especially composers who aren't themselves performers, will sometimes go a little bit overboard and not, not trust the interpreter enough to sort of do their part of the job. Um, you know, for me, I, I like to, I like to leave something to the imagination. Um, so, you know, and that's one of the reasons that I've found these etudes of Phillips so enjoyable to play over the years is that he does trust the interpreter and he loves to hear wildly different interpretations of the scores. And that, I think that's very intentional. So let's define a piano etude for someone who doesn't know. When I was 
teaching myself classical guitar back in the day, an etude was something that basically was an exercise for certain types of fingering, certain types of rhythm and all that. Is that the same for a piano etude? More or less. I mean, I think the um, the early kind of exercise literature of Cherney and, and Hannon and, you know, things like that, um, things that are really just purely pedagogical, um, that's sort of the, the the root of the modern piano etude. But, you know, really starting with Chopin, um, they became also kind of compositional canvases to sort of explore a certain instrumental technique, but also use that as the basis for um, kind of an, an engaging composition. Is part of the reason because they wanted to make one-movement pieces instead of multi-movement pieces, and they had a nice idea that lasted for one movement? I'm not sure about that, because there were there are plenty of other, you know, short forms, uh, you know, Beethoven's Bagatelles, for example, um, you know, Beethoven's yeah. Etude. Mazurkas and all those, yeah. We're thinking of the Etude for the musician, but maybe the Etude is also an Etude for the composer. I mean, maybe it's also a chance to exercise something that they want to work on. That's that's sort of, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. It kind of became this this almost a, a type of game of like, oh, can, can I make a piece that has a kind of technical pedagogical purpose, but that also um, that, that, I, that in that specific material, there's also something music, some sort of musical thread to tease out. And, um, you know, in the Chopin etudes, those kinds of ideas are are often very clear. You know, you have these sort of uh, one for playing thirds and you have one for playing arpeggios and, um, you know, so on and so forth, uh, chromatic scales, um, you know. And the, the Chopin etudes are still, um, you know, for good reason, a kind of, um, they're, they're, they're just such a tentpole of piano playing and of, of piano technique and sort of, you know, mastering those pieces is a rite of passage for, for many, many, um, especially young pianists. Um, is it also considered to be the sort of compulsory works, like in figure skating, they have to do the compulsory things, that every pianist has to be able to play these to show that yeah. they have the skills? Yeah. Certainly. And I, I think, you know, certainly when I was coming up, you would find in sort of audition requirements and competition rep, you know, you have to play a Chopin etude as part of this. Um, this is, you know, one of the main reasons I did not take the pianist's path growing up. I, I always studied composition and um, always just played piano on the side. Um, is that I at that time I wasn't very interested in doing this kind of work, um, but you know, in as a, as an adult, I've kind of come to see these pieces in in a different light. I think I've 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 come around to a new appreciation of them, and certainly, you know, the the tradition of etudes going through you know Rachmaninoff and Debussy and um, uh, who else wrote etudes? Um, Stravinsky, um, 
you know, uh, uh, Ligeti, of course. And, uh, you know, now Philip has sort of this, I'd say another kind of landmark set because it's a, it really is a major body of work, um, you know, to play them through in, in one sitting takes about two and a half hours. Um, and again, I would say like, yes, many of these pieces do serve an explicit technical function. Um, and certainly the early ones, the first set of 10, um, Philip wrote for himself to play and to improve aspects of his own playing. Um, but then as you get on in the set in the, the, the second half, um, they become a little bit more compositional, I would say. Um, they're, they're more kind of etudes for playing the music of Philip Glass. And I think once, once you've worked through the set, you've kind of done a survey of like you hear his rhythms you hear his his familiar chord changes yeah exactly here are all the different compositional techniques that you find in phillips yeah apple music says what you just said that he began writing series of relatively short piano pieces in 1994 with the goal of sharpening technique on the keyboard but on his own website he says the original six a twos were written for dennis russell davies and akin freyer on the occasion of Davies' 50th birthday, then he composed an additional four for himself to expand his own piano technique. I think they were all sort of intended for his own performance. I mean, the, the, the you know, one of the interesting things about being a composer is like, well, the commission has to come from somewhere. But like, I'm sure it was the kind of thing where like, and I don't know this for a fact, but like, sure it was the kind of thing where like, his buddy Dennis was like, oh, I can get you some money from like this festival and and you'll dedicate them to me and, and you know, I'll premiere them there and then you can tour them around the world. Um, you know, oh, that's often sort of how, how the sausage gets made. Um, one other thing that I, I learned interestingly about the origins is that originally they were called preludes. And the, I think the first six were piano preludes and then... At a certain point, he he switched them. He switched the titles to etudes. Has anyone written preludes without something following? You know, Bach's prelude and fugue. Are there a lot of composers who've written preludes just on their own? I'm trying to think. Well, Chopin. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, a, a prelude. It is. It is kind of an oxymoron uh, in a way, I guess, because. You think of the prelude as a prelude to something. Why not? Um, it's a form. It's a form. If you want to mess with it, mess with it. And it's a very free form as well, the prelude. It It's not tied into any type of rhythm or structure or anything. I mean, particularly, you know, you listen to Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier. All the preludes are very different. They can go in any direction. So you've performed these a number of times as far back as what, 2015, 2016? 2013. 2013, and you've performed with Philip Glass and other pianists. You've been involved in complete performances. The the thing I like about this music, it's fun. It doesn't sound serious. It's it's enjoyable. It doesn't sound like, you know, you don't have to take it too seriously. It, it's it's 
it's got Philip Glass's repetition and his his typical chord changes and rhythms, but it's whimsical in a way. I think there always is that sense in Philip's music, and and you know certainly you find that more in some pieces than others. I mean, I I find you know number ten, for instance, to be very fun and very very kind of. Um, you know, in a in in a kind of insistent way, and uh, number thirteen definitely uh, functions as a kind of scherzo, um, and others I think are quite serious and quite and quite um, you know almost almost kind of existentially um, uh, uh, kind of, they they they're kind of open questions. I mean, the the final one, number twenty, I feel that way. Um, certainly, number five, I find to be you know, very um, meditative and and very, um, you know, I, th- I think that the topic of it is kind of um, rather grim in some ways, but also also hopeful. Um, you know, that's at least how I feel when I'm, I'm playing it. I mean, I, I've not analyzed it as closely as you have. I just know when I'm listening to it, there's a certain amount of joy. No, but when I'm listening, there's a certain amount of joy. It's pleasurable. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't feel heavy. It feels light. It feels flows trippingly off the fingers to paraphrase Shakespeare. There's a, there's a transparency to it, which I think is structural. Um, and you all in that you always sort of, are able to feel what's going on, you know, to, to, um, you know, the, 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 the structure is, is made visible in a way, um, which I think is very intentional. Um, you know, in number five, for instance, it's like you have these four layers of things that are happening and you kind of hear them all separately a couple of times and then you hear them together all together a couple of times and that's the piece you know and that process lasts you know 10 12 minutes um but it is on the face of it a really really simple thing some of them are actually quite long when you say 10 12 minutes the longest one there's a complete recording by Maki Namakawa on Philip Glass's Orange Mountain Music label and the longest one is 10 and a half minutes you tend to think of etudes as four or five minutes and a lot of them here are seven or eight so they in other words there's more room to develop what's going on in them than often in etudes i think well i think that sort of gets into philip's uh structural language a bit in that you do often have these very generous uh kind of da capo forms where you're you're kind of circling back and and doing the same thing again um and you know, I I draw a very explicit uh, parallel to Schubert in that. You know, I th- I think these pieces are really perfect uh, companions to Schubert impromptus. Um, in kind of in many ways, I mean, even even in the Schubert impromptus, I mean, I think in another uh, situation he might have easily called those pieces etudes. You know, I think there's certainly uh, a certain of them that I can think of that are very focused on a certain technical element. And formally, I think they they work in very similar ways to Philip's music. And I know um, I've, I've talked about this with, with Philip. I know um, Schubert is, uh, you know, a favorite composer of his and that um, it 
it was sort of something on, on his mind as he was writing these. We had Simona Dinerstein on the podcast during lockdown, and she had just released a recording of some Philip Glass and Schubert. It was Schubert's last piano sonata paired with some Philip Glass stuff. And the parallels are obvious, I think, between the two. E- even if rhythmically it's very different, there, there's, a similar, there's a similar language going on there. Mm. They, well, and they, they both love an ostinato, actually. Mm. So one thing I notice is that, like, Philip Glass has always been this composer who's tried to be in the avant-garde, but also for the general public. Like, I, re- I before you were born, when Glassworks came out, it was a record that was played on WNEW-FM, you know, some of the tracks. And Glassworks was a clear attempt. And what would, Doug, what was the name of the band he produced? Polyrock. Polyrock. He produced that album by Polyrock back in the day. Um, so he's always tried to reach out to I know, a, but I, again, I, I would I would push back on that a little because I I really don't think it was ever a, a a conscious attempt. I don't think I don't think Philip ever wrote toward a market. You know, um, I think he wrote a. a a kind of music that was initially for the first few decades, very much not welcomed by the classical music establishment Um, that they were not having any of it. And they thought it was boring. They thought it was stupid. They just like did not have time for it. Um, And so he, he was writing really for other markets and other venues and and other audiences, um, you know, particularly coming out of the experimental theater downtown New York scene. Uh, that was sort of where he initially located himself. Um, and, you know, in this sort of uh, milieu of Lower East Side, 1960s, 70s, abstract expressionism, you know, he was hanging out with all these visual artists and choreographers and, um, you know, sculptors and and, and playwrights and, sort of uh, those types of people rather than, you know, trying to get a New York Phil commission, which would have been totally, uh, you know, a, a, a total dead end for him at that point. So, and, and even after Einstein on the beach was performed in 76, he went back to driving a cab. Right. I mean, he, he didn't, uh, as, as he tells it, I mean, he did not make a living as a composer until well into his forties. Um but, you know, the people who were sort of in this scene were mostly not, you know, string quartets and opera singers. It was like, yeah, it, it was like experimental pop musicians. And, you know, all of these people were sort of just in a social scene together. Um, and so that's who they ended up all knowing each other and you know, that, that's sort of the, um, the sociological aspect of his music that I think is very interesting. And you're right that the audience that he found or, or which found him is not the typical classical music audience. You know, I think, I think in a large part, classical music has come around to embrace him, but, um, you certainly still do find, especially in the more sort of blue-blooded uh, corners of the classical music world, 
um, strong resistance to glass. Um, you know, I don't think they're doing the uh, glass quartets at Marlboro next summer, you know. <laughs> anyway, the, the reason I said this is because that these piano etudes seem to me accessible, a lot more accessible than a lot of Philip's other music. Well, I mean, you, the word accessible is funny because, you know, accessible to whom? Um, to you know, to people who aren't into classical music, sure, right? So one of his most popular albums is his solo piano album from the late 70s, I think, because it's not, it's not long, it's not complicated, it's not like music for 12 parts, play it loud with the organs. It's, it's like songs rather than classical compositions. And that's how this comes across as something that people who don't care about classical music and don't want to listen to, you know, four movement piano concertos are going to listen to this differently because they're smaller yet self-contained pieces. I think that is maybe part of it, but, you know, I think, you know, also Koyana Scotsi and, and Glassworks and, um, you know, these are very large extended forms. Um, and those were both big hits. Uh, you know, I, I think there are different modes of listening that, um, Philip has explored, uh, certainly in his recorded catalog. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't imagine that like recordings of his operas are, are like doing huge numbers in terms of sales or Spotify. Cause like, you know, that's more of a niche market for recordings. Um, and it's hard to perform Einstein on the beach. Notorious. I've seen Akhenaten performed, in London several times in recent years. So that gets around, but it's true that some of these things are very difficult to perform. So. Right. And, and in that sense, I think Philip has been a very practical composer of like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to make music in all of these different formats for all of these different kinds of venues, movies, TV. Actually, I don't know if he's done TV, but. Um, he's done a lot of film scores. Yeah. yeah films, theater, um, you know, uh, write music for pop singers, write music for himself, um, you know, yes, write symphonies for orchestras, um, write for his own ensemble, you know, all, all of these different avenues. And, um, you know, that kind of flexibility is something that I think is really admirable. And just the, the sort of ability to fit oneself into different circumstances and and, and just like not be too precious about it you know there's a there's a kind of something i i like about philip is his sort of the aspect of him as 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 kind of a humble artisan not necessarily this this like genius composer figure of like sort of beethovenian yeah yeah it's it's like oh he's he's gonna make it work like it like you need music Call Phil. <laughs> well, it's interesting because his his contemporary Steve Reich, I don't think he's ever done a film score. Um, maybe some of his music has been licensed for film, but I don't think he's ever composed a film score. Um, whereas Philip Glass has, I mean, he has done everything. I think Steve is much less that way of of sort of trying to fit himself into different circumstances, and he's Steve is also much less of a sort of compulsive just a, a compulsive producer of music. You know, Steve has a very methodical and very reliable schedule. I mean, he's, he's written like one piece a year for the past, what, like 25 years or yeah. something. 
Um, so he's very, very, he's like clockwork, but it's also a very deliberate process for him. Whereas Phil is like, he's cranking it out in the hotel room after the gig. <laughs> he, he's, he just loves the work he lives for. Yeah. Him. Okay. So just before we started, we were talking about um, different pianos and your desire to maybe record all of these one day. And I said, what if you did them on different instruments, a group of, you know, two or three on a piano, a few on a harpsichord, some on an organ or an electric organ, which Philip Glass really used a lot in the 70s, um, mm-hmm. clavichord. Wouldn't that be an interesting project? I would love that. I, w- I mean, I would also love to just do them right here at home on my own piano, which I think is a very individual sounding instrument. Um, and I think that would certainly set whatever recording I made apart from, you know, any other um yeah, I mean it's it's I don't know. I don't know when that'll happen because there are certain etudes that I've played a great deal over the years that I feel very I feel like I've made them mine in a way. Um and then others that I've played maybe a handful of times that I don't feel that way as strongly that I maybe need to play them for several more years before I get there. And then others, as I, I mentioned earlier, that I haven't even learned yet or have, haven't performed yet. You only learned 15 out of the 20. You're a slacker. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's something that I'll, you know, I, I have time. I have time to do this. I don't need to do it. You're not dead yet, Timo. Exactly. There's the, <laughs> this famous story about um, Richard Good and his complete Beethoven sonata recording. Um which I think came out in like 1990 or 91 on, on Nonsuch, that he had initially meant to record those a decade earlier. And he'd performed them all around and practiced them for years and years and booked the sessions and, you know, started recording them and, and just said, actually, I'm not ready. I don't feel great about this. Um, and canceled the rest of the sessions, performed them all over for another decade, and then recorded them, tried again, and then he he felt ready. So, you know, I totally get that. That is Beethoven, though. That is Beethoven, and it's like, you know, one of the Ev- Mount Everest things. True, and that, yeah, that's like, it's a huge project. I think it's yeah. like t- 10 CDs. 10 hours, yeah music um so but but you know there is something about just performing something over and over living with it coming back to it after a little bit of time away revising your interpretation a little you know every time i come back to these pieces i i think i i hone my interpretation a little bit and play it a little differently and a little better but every recording is a snapshot of you and that piece at the time and and i know that i've listened to Alfred Brendel's various recordings of Schubert over the years, and you can hear how it's different. And it doesn't mean that the earlier ones aren't good. It just means that he played them differently, and he reflected on them, and the later ones are different. It's also interesting that Glass wrote different versions of them. He, You know, they progressed over the years as well, so he wasn't happy with them. They, they yeah. were not ready for everybody until he said they were ready. So it works both ways, right? And then, yeah, and you do you do find um, 
small changes in them, uh, both in the, the the notes themselves and and sort of the forms of them uh, do do change a little bit from version to version. So, you know, that's one of the things that we were kind of sorting through in, in putting this new edition together. Okay, Timo Andrus, you were involved in this new edition of Philip Glass's 20 Etudes for Piano. We will link to your website, Andrus and Sons Bakery, which is not a bakery. You can't get baguettes there. We'll link to well, you. Wait, the bakery is the publisher. So that's, oh, that's, sorry. Okay, that's right. That's the um, that's that's how I publish my school. Like much like Philip Glass, I am self-published. Um, you can buy all my scores uh, through through the website andrus.com and you know, look at my my upcoming concert dates and read the things I've written about music over the years and and uh, you know some other fun stuff. It's a it's a great website. I recommend it. <laughs> and I'll also link to your YouTube page because you have videos of yourself recording several of the Philip Glass etudes. True, though I haven't I haven't put out anything on YouTube in over a year. I've I've been slacking on that. Um, but well, you were so busy during lockdown, right? That yeah. it's you know. Well, actually, I was so I was so not busy during lockdown. Well, so busy doing the videos during lockdown to make up for not doing anything else. Exactly. So and now, so your pace has slowed a bit. Now, thankfully, I'm I'm out and about on the town, and uh, you know, you can come hear me at you can come hear me at Carnegie Hall in February. Yes, Carnegie Hall. How do you get there? Uh, for me, uh, A train. But for no, Timo, <laughs> practice, practice, practice. I should get on. Come on. Get on that. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> okay, Timo, thanks. Thanks, guys. I often say that I go in phases where I listen to an album for maybe a week or two, 10 times or something, because this is really how I get into music. And I've been listening to something in the past week, which is a 45-year-old album, which I've probably listened to 100 times in my life. It's Brian Eno's Music for Airports. It's the er ambient music, which he wrote saying that this should be interesting enough to pay attention to, but bland enough to ignore that it would be the ideal music to play in the background in airports. It's, it's ambient music in a way. There's just so much in these four pieces. It's really astounding how, I don't know, how rich they are. Even though a lot of this is tape loops, like discrete music, and on much of his later generative music. But there's so much in here that's so extraordinary. The four different pieces, they're each different, and it's different types of instruments, and there's voices, and there's not, and there's piano, and there's not... But they all tie together in a way that is extraordinary. It's almost like unintentionally he wrote an ambient symphony with four different movements, and you kind of feel the links between them. It's about 48 minutes long, I think, and the longest piece is 1 slash 1, which is 17 minutes, and the shortest is 2 slash 1, which is 8.54. 1 because side 1, slash because track 1. So it's 1, 1, 1, 2, 2, 1, and 2, 2. It's just such a wonderful album to put on and to think, Thank you, Brian Eno, for having made this music. Doug, what have you got today? Well, I once again have to commend the Apple Music Discovery Station that I can't seem to listen to for more than three songs without falling down a rabbit hole. And it caught me this time. I heard a song by Mick Taylor I had never heard before. Now, he's usually under my radar. Ever since he left the Stones, occasionally Mick Taylor would pop up in a YouTube video or 
someone would say, listen to this, it's Mick Taylor. Or I'd see out of the corner of my eye one of his solo albums. He continues to work in the studio and do blues, but I miss this whole era of Mick Taylor. Back in the early 90s, actually late 80s and early 90s, he hooked up with a woman by the name of Carla Olson, and they uh, did a, a particularly great live record, Live at the Roxy, called Too Hot for Snakes. Completely missed it. They do a terrific version of Sway, which is from the Rolling Stones album Sticky Fingers. So I checked that out, and boy, it sounds amazing. So what I did was I, I they have a, a best-of package of the stuff that the two of them did together. That is Mick Taylor and Carla Olson. I still don't know who Carla Olson is. I'm going to have to go do some research on her. But the stuff on this live recording and some of the stuff that they did in the studio is really, really great. It's uh, It ranges, the live stuff ranges from some Stones covers and some traditional tunes and some blues tunes and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's about what you'd expect, but it sounds great. And of course, Mick Taylor has just has not lost that slide sound that he has. He has such an identifiable slide sound. Not too many guys who, who play slide guitar can say that. Johnny Winter is the only other guy I can think of that has a great slide technique that is identifiable from 50 paces. But Mick Taylor's another one. And the great, the great thing about the Sway version is he plays the solo note for note from the album. But then in the second half of the song, he really lets loose. It's really just some terrific stuff. Sway, the best of Carla Olson and Mick Taylor is my next track. This was episode number 270 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. And we hope you'll support The Next Track by making a regular donation via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so we depend on the listener support of our Patreon patrons to keep us going. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. Thank you very much. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>